Chapter 16, Part 10 of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume 2, by John Fox. Edited by William Byron Forbush. Chapter 16. Persecutions in England during the reign of Queen Mary. Part 10. Mrs. Prest, for some time, lived about Cornwall, where she had a husband and children, whose bigotry compelled her to frequent the abominations of the Church of Rome. Resolving to act as her conscience dictated, she quitted them, and made a living by spinning. After some time, returning home, she was accused by her neighbors, and brought to Exeter, to be examined before Dr. Troubleville, and his chancellor, Blackston. As this martyr was accounted of inferior intellect, we shall put her in competition with the bishop, and let the reader judge which had the most of that knowledge conducive to everlasting life. The bishop bringing the question to issue, respecting the bread and wine being flesh and blood, Mrs. Prest said, I will demand of you whether you can deny your creed, which says that Christ doth perpetually sit at the right hand of his Father, both body and soul, until he come again, or whether he be there in heaven our advocate, and to make prayer for us unto God his Father. If he be so, he is not here on earth in a piece of bread. If he not be here, and if he do not dwell in temples made with hands, but in heaven, what shall we seek him here? If he did not offer his body once for all, why make you a new offering? If with one offering he made all perfect, why do you with a false offering make all imperfect? If he be to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, why do you worship a piece of bread? If he be eaten and drunken in faith and truth, if his flesh be not profitable to be among us, why do you say you make his flesh and blood, and say it is profitable for body and soul? Alas, I am a poor woman, but rather than to do as you do, I would live no longer. I have said, sir. Bishop, I promise you, you are a jolly Protestant. I pray you, in what school have you been brought up? Mrs. Prest, I have upon the Sundays visited the sermons, and there have I learned such things are so fixed in my breast that death shall not separate them. Bishop, O foolish woman, who will waste his breath upon thee, or such as thou art? But how chanceth it that thou wentest away from thy husband? If thou wert an honest woman, thou wouldst not have left thy husband and children, and run about the country like a fugitive. Mrs. Prest Sir, I labored for my living, and as my master Christ counseleth me, when I was persecuted in one city, I fled to another. Bishop Who persecuted thee? Mrs. Prest my husband and my children, 
For when I would have them to leave idolatry, and to worship God in heaven, he would not hear me, but he with his children rebuked me and troubled me. I fled not for whoredom, nor for theft, but because I would be no partaker with him and his of that foul idol the mass. And wheresoever I was, as oft as I could, upon Sundays and holidays, I made excuses not to go to the popish church. Bishop, belike then you are a good housewife to fly from your husband the church. Mrs. Prest, my housewifery is but small, but God gave me grace to go to the true church. Bishop, the true church, what dost thou mean? Mrs. Prest, not your popish church, full of idols and abominations, but where two or three are gathered together in the name of God, to that church will I go as long as I live. Bishop, belike then you have a church of your own. Well, let this mad woman be put down to prison until we send for her husband. Mrs. Prest, no, I have but one husband, who is here already in this city, and in prison with me, from whom I will never depart. Some persons present endeavoring to convince the bishop she was not in her right senses, she was permitted to depart. The keeper of the bishop's prisons took her into his house, where she either spun, worked as a servant, or walked about the city, discoursing upon the sacrament of the altar. Her husband was sent for to take her home, but this she refused while the cause of religion could be served. She was too active to be idle, and her conversation, simple as they affected to think her, excited the attention of several Catholic priests and friars. They teased her with questions, until she answered them angrily, and this excited a laugh at her warmth. Nay, said she, you have more need to weep than to laugh, and to be sorry that ever you were born, to be the chaplains of that whore of Babylon. I defy him in all his falsehood, and get you away from me, you do but trouble my conscience. You would have me follow your doings, I will first lose my life. I pray you depart. Why, thou foolish woman, said they, we come to thee for thy profit and soul's health. To which she replied, What profit ariseth by you that teach nothing but lies for truth? How save you souls, when you preach nothing but lies, and destroy souls? How provest thou that? said they. Do you not destroy your souls? when you teach the people to worship idols, stocks, and stones, the work of men's hands, and to worship a false god of your own making of a piece of bread, and teach that the Pope is God's vicar, and hath power to forgive sins, and that there is a purgatory when God's Son by his passion purged all, and say you make God and sacrifice him when Christ's body was a sacrifice once for all, do you not teach the people to number their sins in your ears, and say they will be damned if they confess not all? When God's word saith, Who can number his sins? Do you not promise them trentals and dirges and masses for souls, and sell your prayers for money, and make them buy pardons, and trust to such foolish inventions of your imaginations? Do you not altogether act against God, 
Do you not teach us to pray upon beads and to pray unto saints and say they can pray for us? Do you not make holy water and holy bread to fray devils? Do you not do a thousand more abominations? And yet you say, You come for my profit and to save my soul. No, no, one hath saved me. Farewell, you with your salvation. During the liberty granted her by the bishop before mentioned, she went into St. Peter's Church, and there found a skillful Dutchman who was affixing new noses to certain fine images which had been disfigured in King Edward's time, to whom she said, What a madman art thou to make them new noses, which within a few days shall all lose their heads? The Dutchman accused her, and laid it hard to her charge. And she said unto him, Thou art accursed, and so are thy images. He called her a whore. Nay, said she, thy images are whores, and thou art a whore-hunter. For doth not God say, You go a-whoring after strange gods, figures of your own making? And thou art one of them. After this she was ordered to be confined, and had no more liberty. During the time of her imprisonment, many visited her, some sent by the bishop, and some of their own will. Among these was one Daniel, a great preacher of the gospel, in the days of King Edward, about Cornwall and Devonshire, but who, through the grievous persecutions he had sustained, had fallen off. Earnestly did she exhort him to repent with Peter, and to be more constant in his profession. Mrs. Walter Rowley and Mr. William and John Keed, persons of great respectability, bore ample testimony of her godly conversation, declaring that unless God were with her, it were impossible she could have so ably defended the cause of Christ. Indeed, to sum up the character of this poor woman, she united the serpent and the dove, abounding in the highest wisdom joined to the greatest simplicity. She endured imprisonment, threatenings, taunts, and the vilest epithets, but nothing could induce her to swerve. Her heart was fixed. She had cast anchor. Nor could all the wounds of persecution remove her from the rock on which her hopes of felicity were built. Such was her memory that, without learning, she could tell in what chapter any text of Scripture was contained. On account of this singular property, one Gregory Bassett, a rank papist, said she was deranged, and talked as a parrot, wild without meaning. At length, having tried every manner without effect to make her nominally a Catholic, they condemned her. After this, one exhorted her to leave her opinions and go home to her family, as she was poor and illiterate. True, said she, though I am not learned, I am content to be a witness of Christ's death. And I pray you make no longer delay with me, for my heart is fixed, and I will never say otherwise, nor turn to your superstitious doing. To the disgrace of Mr. Blackstone, treasurer of the church, he would often send for this poor martyr from prison to make sport for him and a woman whom he kept, putting religious questions to her, and turning her answers into ridicule. This done, he sent her back to her wretched dungeon, 
while he battened upon the good things of this world. There was perhaps something simply ludicrous in the form of Mrs. Prest, as she was a very short stature, thick-set, and about fifty-four years of age. But her countenance was cheerful and lively, as if prepared for the day of her marriage with the Lamb. To mock at her form was an indirect accusation of her Creator, who framed her after the fashion he liked best, and gave her a mind that far excelled the transient endowments of perishable flesh. When she was offered money, she rejected it, because, said she, I am going to a city where money bears no mastery, and while I am here, God has promised to feed me. When sentence was read, condemning her to the flames, she lifted up her voice and praised God, adding, This day have I found that which I have long sought. When they tempted her to recant, Thou will I not, said she. God forbid that I should lose the life eternal, for this carnal and short life. I will never turn from my heavenly husband to my earthly husband, from the fellowship of angels to mortal children. And if my husband and children be faithful, then I am theirs. God is my father. God is my mother. God is my sister, my brother, my kinsman. God is my friend, most faithful. Being delivered to the sheriff, she was led by the officer to the place of execution, without the walls of Exeter, called Sothenhay, where again the superstitious priests assaulted her. While they were tying her to the stake, she continued earnestly to exclaim, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Patiently enduring the devouring conflagration, she was consumed to ashes, and thus ended a life which in unshaken fidelity to the cause of Christ was not surpassed by that of any preceding martyr. Richard Sharp, Thomas Banyan, and Thomas Hale Mr. Sharp, weaver of Bristol, was brought the ninth day of March, 1556, before Dr. Dalby, Chancellor of the City of Bristol, and after examination concerning the sacrament of the altar, was persuaded to recant. And on the twenty-ninth he was enjoined to make his recantation in the parish church. But scarcely had he publicly avowed his backsliding, before he felt in his conscience such a tormenting fiend, that he was unable to work at his occupation. Hence, shortly after, one Sunday, he came into the parish church, called Temple, and after high mass, stood up in the choir door, and said with a loud voice, Neighbors, bear me record that yonder idol, pointing to the altar, is the greatest and most abominable that ever was, and I am sorry that I ever denied my Lord God. Notwithstanding, the constables were ordered to apprehend him. He was suffered to go out of the church, but at night he was apprehended and carried to Newgate. Shortly after, before the chancellor, denying the sacrament of the altar to be the body and blood of Christ, he was condemned to be burned by Mr. Dalby. He was burnt the 7th of May, 1558, and died godly, 
patiently and constantly confessing the Protestant articles of faith. With him suffered Thomas Hale, shoemaker of Bristol, who was condemned by Chancellor Dalby. These martyrs were bound back to back. Thomas Banyan, a weaver, was burnt on August 27th of the same year and died for the sake of the evangelical cause of his Savior. J. Cornerford of Wortham, C. Brown of Maidstone, J. Hurst of Ashford, Alice Snoth, and Catherine Knight, an aged woman. With pleasure we have to record that these five martyrs were the last who suffered in the reign of Mary for the sake of the Protestant cause. But the malice of the Papists was conspicuous in hastening their martyrdom, which might have been delayed until the event of the Queen's illness was decided. It is reported that the Archdeacon of Canterbury, judging that the sudden death of the Queen would suspend the execution, traveled post from London to have the satisfaction of adding another page to the black list of papistical sacrifices. The articles against them were, as usual, the sacramental elements and the idolatry of bending to images. They quoted St. John's words, Beware of images, and respecting the real presence, they urged, according to St. Paul, The things which are seen are temporal. When sentence was about to be read against them, an excommunication to take place in the regular form, John Cornford, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, awfully turned the latter proceeding against themselves, and in a solemn, impressive manner, recriminated their excommunication in the following words. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most Mighty God, and by the power of His Holy Spirit, and the authority of His Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, we do here give into the hands of Satan to be destroyed the bodies of all those blasphemers and heretics that maintain any error against His Most Holy Word, or do condemn his most holy truth for heresy, to the maintenance of any false church or foreign religion, so that by thy just judgment, O most mighty God, against thy adversaries, thy true religion may be known to thy great glory, and our comfort, and to the edifying of all our nation. Good Lord, so be it. Amen. This sentence was openly pronounced and registered, and, as if Providence had awakened that it should not be delivered in vain, within six days after, Queen Mary died, detested by all good men, and accursed of God. Though acquainted with these circumstances, the archdeacon's implacability exceeded that of his great exemplary, Bonner, who, though he had several persons at that time under his fiery grasp, did not urge their deaths hastily, by which delay he certainly afforded them an opportunity of escape. At the Queen's decease, many were in bonds, some just taken, some examined, and others condemned. The writs, indeed, were issued for several burnings, but by the death of the three instigators of Protestant murder, the Chancellor, the Bishop, and the Queen, who fell nearly together, the condemned sheep were liberated 
and lived many years to praise God for their happy deliverance. These five martyrs, when at the stake, earnestly prayed that their blood might be the last shed, nor did they pray in vain. They died gloriously, and perfected the number God had selected to bear witness of the truth in this dreadful reign, whose names are recorded in the book of life. The last, not least among the saints, made meet for immortality through the redeeming blood of the Lamb. Catherine Finlay, alias Knight, was first converted by her son's expounding the scripture to her, which wrought in her a perfect work that terminated in martyrdom. Alice Snoth at the stake sent for her grandmother and godfather and rehearsed to them the articles of her faith and the commandments of God, thereby convincing the world that she knew her duty. She died calling upon the spectators to bear witness that she was a Christian woman and suffered joyfully for the testimony of Christ's gospel. Among the numberless enormities committed by the merciless and unfeeling Bonner, the murder of this innocent and unoffending child may be ranged as the most horrid. His father, John Fetty, of the parish of Clerkenwell, by trade a tailor, and only twenty-four years of age, had made blessed election. He was fixed secure in eternal hope, and depended on him who so builds his church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But alas, the very wife of his bosom, whose heart was hardened against the truth, and whose mind was influenced by the teachers of false doctrine, became his accuser. Brokenberry, a creature of the Pope, and parson of the parish, received the information of this wedded Delilah, in consequence of which the poor woman was apprehended. But here the awful judgment of an ever-righteous God, who is of pure eyes than to behold evil, fell upon this stone-hearted and perfidious woman, for no sooner was the injured husband captured by her wicked contriving than she also was suddenly seized with madness and exhibited an awful and awakening instance of God's power to punish the evildoer. This dreadful circumstance had some effect upon the hearts of the ungodly hunters who had eagerly grasped their prey. But in a relenting moment they suffered him to remain with his unworthy wife, to return her good for evil, and to comfort two children who, on his being sent to prison, would have been left without a protector, or have become a burden to the parish. As bad men act from little motives, we may place the indulgence shown him to the latter account. End of chapter 16, part 10